I have to come up here with me sometime and preach. He's kind of got that look in his eyes. Okay, the Women's Resource Center this Thursday is their annual fundraiser. And so um, if uh, we support them as a church, if you're interested in supporting a, a very good ministry, an important ministry in our county, this is one that's worth looking at. Okay, um, okay, we're in a series, Life Sucks and Then You Die. Really? We're looking at Ecclesiastes. And uh, a couple people last week said, was that, uh, was that a little bit vulgar? I don't know. Ask the author of Ecclesiastes. Is that true? Life sucks and then you die? Actually, it is. That's his message all the way through. Uh, life sucks and then you die if you don't know Christ. Nothing has any meaning whatsoever. And so um, what I want to do today, we're going to look at all the many things that he tried in life. And so there's going to be a bunch of verses up there. So just walk with me. They're all out of Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. Okay, so you can find them. All the various things he tried in life and, um, uh, and found no meaning whatsoever. Remember the word meaningless or meaninglessness comes, I don't usually give you the Hebrew term, but this one has importance. It comes from the Hebrew term havel, which uh, Abel got his name from, Cain and Abel. And so havel is basically breath or wind. It's all life is worth. Pretty soon he's going to add a phrase to it. Everything is meaningless. Chasing after the wind. Everything. Remember that the message of Ecclesiastes is that there is nothing in life. Let me say it again. There's nothing in life. Nothing that can give sustainable meaning to life. Even when you know Christ, there's nothing in life that can give you meaning. Only Christ can give you meaning. He's the only one. Following after the one true God. So you'll begin to change. If you think this way, you'll begin to look at everything in terms of blessing, including adversity, including adversity. Whatever the Lord throws your way uh, is considered blessing. And he's going to run down a list of a whole bunch of things that he tried, and none of them works. Ecclesiastes, like all of the, the rest of the wisdom literature, is designed to, to teach you how to think rather than what to think. And so it's going to surface questions that you're going to have to wrestle with. So if I do my job today, I'm going to push you back in corners with questions and let you begin to wrestle even more deeply than last week. But this week what I want to do is rather than focus on your life, I want you to, as we go through this, I want you to have in mind one of your unbelieving friends who doesn't know the Lord. This describes their life, okay? Uh, most of you are followers of the Lord, and so you have some significance that is growing because, some meaning that's growing because of who Christ is, all right? Uh, but it's not because of the, the event itself or the thing itself. If your focus is on that, it's chasing after that breath after the wind. That's Abel's story. 
here today, gone tomorrow. He said, quick. He said, quick. So today we're going to talk about three topics. There's no fulfillment found in wisdom, no fulfillment found in escapism. He's going to say, I tried everything in the world that there was to try. And we're going to look at the list of everything he tried, and there was no meaning in that. And there's no fulfillment found in legacy. Legacy. That's a surprising one for some of you. When we get there, you'll see what I mean by that, how he explains it. One of the questions I get asked, I got asked it several times this week, actually. How do I, um, how do I look at all that's going on around us? I mean, the, the country's in a swirl. I don't have to tell you that, okay? It's a mess. Uh, it's divided, it's fractured, it's hostile, it's anger, anger everywhere that we look. How do I manage to walk through that and experience joy and happiness and not be too upset about it, too worried about it? Well, I love, I love social media. I just love it. Uh, in all of its evil, okay? Because I, it gives me the chance to look at the remote parts of the globe, which 10 years ago I couldn't see. I can see the riots occurring in Australia, for example. I can see Denmark lifting all of their COVID restrictions. I see these things going on. I see people hospitalized and dying in Nepal. Uh, I see churches being shut down in Mozambique. I get to see the whole globe. And so I picture it as, uh, I've used this up here a couple times in the analogy. I look at it as a big chess match between God and Satan. I get to sit at the table and watch them playing chess, okay? Satan is always convinced he's going to win, but he never can win. It's impossible, but he's deceived. So he's always throwing something at us, and God is always the one with a grin on his face saying, checkmate, you want to play again? Checkmate, you want to play again? There is nothing that can come into our world that is accidental. The definition of omniscience is God knows everything, including your worst sin you're going to commit on the day he saved you. And the definition of sovereignty is God is in absolute control. Nothing can happen without his permission. Nothing. That means there's no such thing as fate, destiny, accident, any of that. Okay? What, throws, what comes at us is part of the grand cosmic battle. Another imagery that I've used is I feel like I'm sitting on the front row of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Okay? Watching them go at it. And so I get up in the morning. One of the first things I want to do, and you can ask Nance, it drives her nuts, is look on here and see what the headlines are, what happened while I was sleeping at nighttime, because it's like there's another part of the chess game. And it's like, okay, God, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, I go back a lot of presidents. You know the president I'm going to respect? The first one is the one that stands up there on the State of the Union speech and says, our country is going to hell, and I don't have a clue what to do about it. They'll have my vote, okay? Starting with the Caesars, they all had what we call the good news. Evangelism is not a uniquely Christian term. That was very uh, common in the Roman world. And the emperors, like our presidents today, we got some problems, but we got it figured out. Trust us, okay? Sorry, but I don't. I enjoy it more as a, as a um, maybe it sounds a little cavalier, I don't mean it quite this way, but it's a comedy show. What's going on? I wake up in the morning to see what the new headlines are to say, okay, God, what's happening? I, before, at, on, uh, when the president is voted in the election, the night before, I try to guess who's going to win before the election. I'm right 50% of the time. <laughs> okay? And I'm surprised 50% of the time. But I always scratch my head and say, okay, Lord, where are we going? What are you doing now? Okay? Hey, what are we going to do? I think I have the American people figured out, and I'm wrong. But God 
isn't wrong or surprised. And so every president takes us in a different direction. And to me, it's part of that chess match. And I'm far enough along in life that, honestly, I don't have anything to prove to anybody anymore. I'm happy with my career where I am. I love being here. And I get to sit there and watch it happen in front of my eyes, the cosmic battle between God and Satan. It is fantastic. Because if you realize that there's no such thing as accident, that God is in charge, then you can relax. You really can. And you can enjoy the show when God, when Jesus, uh, I mean, when God says in Genesis three that uh, the curse, it's all messed up. Guess what? He was right. We call that total depravity. Total depravity means that every single part of you and creation has been destructively impacted. Every molecule. That's why Paul can argue in Romans. God subjected the creation to frustration because of our sin. And all of creation is awaiting our redemption. They're waiting for us to get our act together so that they can breathe easy again. That's the frustration of creation in a fallen world. And Ecclesiastes is simply pushing to the surface what that frustration and that devastation looks like because it is very real. And the more you pursue chasing after the wind, the more futile it becomes and the more frustrating it becomes. I'll give you some examples in just a minute. All right, let's first talk about uh, the first topic is there's no fulfillment found in wisdom. In chapter 1, verse 13, um, he says... I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the, under the heavens. Okay, when he uses the phrase under the heavens or under the sun, what he's telling us is that he's dealing with what's happening on the earth. He's not trying to give us insight into eternity into heaven. Okay, now the futility of what we discover pushes us toward the future because if this is all there is, really? If this is all there is, this is really disappointing. People ask me, do you ever doubt God? Not too much anymore, but sometimes I do. I'll be walking down to the amphitheater to preach, and Lord, if this is really is, I'm really going to be ticked off. You know? No, it pushes us toward a, a belief, what we think about the hope. Is there really hope out there? As Christians, we believe there is. The world is always looking for hope in the things that they can control and grab. Chasing after the wind. So when he uses this phrase, everything under the heavens or under the sun, he's talking about what's happening in the world and our life right here. He said, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. That is a fulfillment of Genesis 3. That's an exactly what God said. All of creation is going to fight you and push you and mock you and hit you and kick you. And you're never going to get your way. That's why Jesus' words, my yoke is easy, are so significant. My burden is light. Because creation loads every one of you up with far more stress than you should have. That's the world. It's the world we live in. And so he starts off in verse 13. He's obviously on a quest, whoever this king is, to determine what is actually meaningful in life. His exploration is deeply personal. It involves everything on the earth. So he's obviously in a position to go explore everything that's happening. Okay? We, we, most of us don't have that luxury. So he was a king. 
had all the wealth and riches that go with being a king. He could have whatever he wanted. I don't have that option. My world's a little more contained, right? And so he gets to go try everything. So he discovers that this burden is an impossible burden. It's impossible. It really is. So when we say life sucks and then you die, that is actually the truth. That's why what Christ did is so vital. That is our only hope. It's our only hope. So he's arguing and everything he tries reveals that the curse is very real. His conclusion is that everything is meaningless. Go on to verse 14. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun that's on earth. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. All of them are breath and we're chasing after wind. That's all it is. That's all it is. Feels very frustrating. It feels futile. It is. Um, this is. This reinforces his earlier conclusion that life is meaningless. There's no straightforward way through this meaningless. It is truly frustrating and futile. Look, let's compare verse 15 and 18. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And in verse 18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. And more, the more knowledge you get, the more grief. You see, what he's arguing here is that this fallen world, this totally depraved, broken world, uh, the nature of it becomes self-evident. All you got to do is live life. That's all you got to do. Just be human and live life. And not only has it become self-evident, you can't dispute it, and even more importantly, you can't change it. The best Congress in the world can't change a fallen world. They just can't. Now, don't get me wrong. I really like it when there's a good, when there's good leaders in power. You know, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice, Proverbs tells us. So I like it. But they're not going to change. The fundamental flaw is that the world is broken. And that was God's act. Because we sinned. That was his decision, his judgment. Okay? Do you want to be like me? Welcome to omniscience. Now you get to handle all the destructiveness and tragedies that go with it. Welcome to being omniscient or attempting to be omniscient. So we know from 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that increasing, this is true, what he's saying, increasing wisdom and knowledge brings sorrow and grief. It brings exhaustion. 1 Corinthians 8 Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, builds up. So one of the things that when Mark was going to seminary, um, our last assistant pastor, I said, it's very important that you get teaching, regular teaching in, because the more you learn, the more arrogant you become. You've got to have a way to, to let it out. Okay, Stefan, our youth pastor, the same thing. He's going to seminary. You've got to have a way to let it out. I tell the students in seminary when I teach there, you've got to engage in ministry the more knowledge you get, the more grief there is, the more sorrow there is. That's right. It's a heavy burden. Just being very honest, some days I wish I could just go back and dig ditches. I can't. But I could, didn't know that before I went down this path. <laughs> I have a friend that became, uh, he's a baggage handler, 
with one of the airlines, and they promoted him to supervisor. And uh, it didn't last but six months. I don't like this. I went back down to being a baggage handler. I said, why? And he goes, because in between airplanes, I can sit and just read and pray. I don't have to handle all the press, the pressures and stresses of leadership. And there's a lot. You know what I'm talking about. Now, unlike Proverbs, uh, wisdom does not bring joy in life. Proverbs argues one direction. Ecclesiastes argues a different direction. But there's a difference in assumptions and the aspect, the way they're looking at the world. So the author of Ecclesiastes is showing us what the world looks like without God and without hope. And the author of Proverbs is showing us what the world looks like with God and with hope. So we can see they have two very different perspectives, but that's the difference between you and the rest of the world. That's why I said today, I want you to have in mind your unbelieving friends and neighbors, people that you know, okay, relatives. Because Ecclesiastes has given us what their world is like. It doesn't do any good to talk to them about hope because they don't understand it. But without Jesus, this is the world. This is the reality of the world without the Lord. And so that's what he's doing. So this sets the stage for John the Baptist. Think about what he just said. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What did Matthew 3 say about John the Baptist? He has come to prepare the way to make straight the crooked paths. We have insight. Without the Messiah, Ecclesiastes is it. It's all we have. And you're talking to a person that has all the wisdom and the wealth in the world and is still empty, nothing there. That's real life without Jesus. So John the Baptist is preparing the way to make those pathways straight so the Messiah can enter into our world. Okay, let me say a word about escapism, chapter 2. Uh, there's no fulfillment in escapism. He moves on, the author, onto the various explorations and experiments that he uses to try to find that elusive joy and fulfillment. He's going to try everything. And you're probably going to find yourself here. He tells it right up front. He gives us a conclusion in verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test with pleasure to find out what is good. But guess what? That also proved to be meaningless. I searched for good and found emptiness. Found nothing. Think of Isaiah. All of your deeds, your good deeds, are nothing more than filthy rags. See how hopeless it is without Christ? It's empty. It's empty. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to start reading down through here, and the verses will pop up, and you just follow along, okay? He tried a variety of things. Starting in verse 2, Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine. Okay, there we go, wine. He tried that. And, um, and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the, the few days of their life. He tried wine. Now he's going to try various projects. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I tried all those. There was nothing there. Then it goes on to slaves and herds. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Anyone else? He tried wealth, music, sexual intimacy. Listen to this. Verse 8. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings 
and provinces. I acquired male and female singers. There's music. I had a harem. Some of your translations say concubines. He's talking about sexual intimacy, the delights of a man's heart. I tried it all. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this, my wisdom stayed with me. And then in verse 10, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. When I surveyed everything that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, guess what? Everything was... Chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I'm reading a confession by Leo Tolstoy. Some of you know that name. Here's his opening statement. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without answering which one cannot live, as I had found by experience. Here's the question. What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? Or more importantly, what will come of my whole life? I told the elders when the time comes for me to step down and retire because I'm too old, all they have to do is come look me in the eyes and say, time is here. That's it. Like Paul in 2 Timothy, I will weep with joy because I ran the race with endurance. I finished the course. I never forget sitting with Merle Wilhite a week before he died in ICU. And I said, uh, what's it like, Merle, to be given one week to live? And he said, he had COPD. I made it. What do you mean you made it? He said, I was faithful to my wife, to my Lord, to my calling. That's what I want to say at the end. What will come of my whole life? What will come of it? That's the question that Ecclesiastes is pushing to the surface. You have to understand it is all meaningless. You can't take any of it with you. We know from Galatians 5, that the lust of the flesh is not fulfilling. It's all an illusion. That's the very heart of Satan's ministry. It's all an illusion. He's a master at deceit. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Then his conclusion is very powerful. The same fate awaits both the wise and the foolish. In verse 12, I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. I love that. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fools walk in darkness. But I soon came to realize that the same fate overtakes both of them. Hmm. So I said to myself, the fate of the fool overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this, too, is meaningless. You see, wisdom in the eyes of the world leads you nowhere. 
Wisdom is a result of studying Christ. It's the wisdom, the wisdom of the world is a result of following Christ, not the other way around. Solomon proved that. Wisest man in the world did not trump faith. Didn't trump faith. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Death awaits us all. What's left? Getting the point? You see, what I'm asking you to do is readjust your expectations of what's happening. Don't get caught up in CRT, inflation, equity issues, school board decisions. Oh, I mean, don't, don't hear me wrong. If you want to get involved, please get involved. We need more Christians involved. But don't, don't wrap your heart around that. It's all meaningless. Nothing is happening by accident. God is far more powerful than that. You can have confidence in God who does understand and know everything. You can have faith. That's why I said what we experience in here should be very different than what the world experiences. We're not better, but we have a handle on the truth. We know what joy looks like. And we know that it's very elusive. And they're trying their hardest. And it doesn't get them anywhere. He has one more thing he wants to experiment with. I love this one. It has to do with legacy. He explores what it means to leave a legacy. Verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all things that I had toiled for under the sun. Why? Because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my labor into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. At night, even then, their minds do not rest. Anybody relate to that? Even at nighttime, their minds do not rest. This is meaningless. Here's a great book. He's pushing the very core up to the surface of what we all deal with. Many years ago, I met a man in California worth about $30, $40 million. Um, I'm never going to have that kind of pressure. The pressures that we all face, by the way, are different, but they all end up in the same place, empty. Okay? The pressures of the wealthy are very different than the pressures of the poor, but the pressures are still there. So this was his, his stress. We met together. I met with he and his wife, and he was in the early uh, stages of Alzheimer's, still had control of his uh, faculties, but he knew the days were numbered. And he said, um, he said, you know, 
He said, I did my best to raise my children to love the Lord, four of them. We did family devotions every day. I made them a priority. And uh, God, whatever I touched, God turned to gold. It just grew and grew and grew. And we've given all kinds of money to organizations. And I still have $30 million and I'm about to die. And none of my children will walk with the Lord. His eyes filled with tears. And he said, I don't know why. Can you help me? Because they've made it clear if I don't leave it to them, they're going to feel insulted and bitter. But if I leave it to them, the Lord is the one that made this money. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? I don't have a clue how to answer that question. <laughs> All right? I get it. Some of you have been down that road. One of my children went the route, the, I call it the scenic route to Jesus. In and out of prison, jail, substance abuse programs, 18 to 20 years of anguish. This man that was worth all the money in the world to me, California said I would give it all up in a second. I'd give it all up in a second to have my children. I felt that way many times with one of my children. I would give it all up in a second. You know, that's what he's talking about here. This emptiness, this meaninglessness. Get to the end of life and he has Alzheimer's, his days are numbered. And what all is all that money worth to him? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The problem is that he has no idea what the result will be. All the hard work and nothing to show for it. It's interesting, Tolstoy goes on and he describes what his life was like. He was part of the elite in Russia, um, part of the wealthy. And, um, and so he describes his life. This, when he was 50, as he said, he was on the verge of suicide. And he really began to explore Greek philosophers and all kinds of avenues to figure out the truth. Because he couldn't quite find himself to commit suicide. And that's when he found the Lord. So now reflecting back on that, here's what he says. I cannot think of those years without horror, loathing, and heartache. I killed men in war. I challenged men to duels in order to kill them. I lost at cards. I consumed the labor of the peasants. Remember, he was one of the rich elite. Okay. I sentenced them to punishments, lived loosely, deceived people, lying, robbery, adultery, of all kinds, drunkenness, violence, murder. There was no crime I did not commit. And for all that, people praised my conduct and my contemporaries considered and consider me to be a comparatively moral man. That's how the world thinks about this. They look on your success. They look on your wealth. They look on all that, your achievements. They're just looking in the wrong place. It's empty. It's empty. I'm also reading a book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. If you've not read it, it's well worth it. He went through the Holocaust, was in a concentration camp. Uh, he was um, a psychiatrist, a young psychiatrist when he got sent to the concentration camps. So he approached the concentration camps in a different way than everybody else. He was an analytic and a psychiatrist, so he's evaluating what's happening with people. As soon as he got out, he wrote this book. And so he says, life is not primarily a quest for pleasure as Freud believed. It's not a quest for pleasure. 
That's why the Solomon or the author of Ecclesiastes is eventually going to say, just go for it. Grab everything you can. Because without the Lord, that's all you get. Right? It's not primarily a quest for pleasure as Freud believed or a quest for power as Adler taught, but a quest for meaning. The greatest task for any person is to find meaning in his or her life. You see, without the Lord, a job could be mundane. But with the Lord, a job could have significance. Without the Lord, wealth is empty. But with the Lord, wealth is a means of blessing. And you can fill in the blank on every one, every single one. So, if this king could find no meaning with all that was at his disposal, how on earth can we? That's why, thank you, Tess, for reading Ephesians 2. Paul says, we are formerly without God and without hope. Those go together in the world. But now, because of Jesus, he goes on to say, we've been given both of those. Without God and without hope. That's, that's what the world is like for your friends. They're, they're chasing after the wind. A little more money. A little more success. A little more romanticism. Fill in the blank. And those of you that are older, you know what I mean. The older you get, the less I'm willing to die for. So how do I look at the world today? Well, I've been a Christian 44 years. I laugh. Psalm 2, the Lord laughs at the nations. For you young people, look at the world and laugh. Don't get so mired in the hostility. Don't act like the world. Change your perspective and be a person of hope. I've asked this question many times over the years. What keeps you from talking to your friends about Jesus. They don't know who he is. They only have a stereotype based on some religious experience or what the newspaper says. They don't know the truth. All you got to do is sit with somebody and say, do you have a faith background? Tell me about it. I can tell you in over 5,000 coffees and beers in the last eight years, I've only met one person that didn't have a faith background. We're not into evangelism. We're into recovery. <laughs> you know, we chucked the, our young generations right out the church door. Let's go get them. Talk to them and say, and listen to their stories. You're going to hear things that just make you weep. Some make you laugh. Some make you scratch your head and go, how on earth did you get that experience? You know, it's really that easy. I know what you're afraid of. You're afraid you're going to get the guy who can out-argue you and box you in the corner with the best questions that you can't answer. That's not true. That's who I get. Okay? That's my training. I live for that. I love it. I have from day one. I look for the most controversial person. That's the one I want. You see, God is like a traffic cop, cosmic traffic cop. He's going to route into your life the person that needs what you have. Oh, you might get one of those cantankerous people. Just come get me. I live for it. Okay? No, you're not. That's not what's going to happen. The greatest thing that God can do for your enemy is to route them into your life. You know why? Because you're the last person they expect to show love. So if you really believe what Jesus said, turn the other cheek, do good to those who hate you, love your neighbor, when you see all that, okay, love your enemies, then the greatest thing God can do for your enemies is route them right into your life so that you can show them love and surprise them and start asking them the right questions. 
You see, what Ecclesiastes is giving us, it's giving us the perspective of the world. Don't buy into it. Don't, don't be deceived. All of your wealth is worth nothing. Nothing. All of your success doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things without the Lord. Okay, so last week, I, uh, in the last couple of weeks, I talked about idols, and I made the comment that the further you move away from the Lord, the colder your heart grows. Quit chasing after idols. That was my point. Okay, let me add one more layer to it this week. The more you chase after idols or the more you are concerned with the cares of this world, the less you are concerned with your unbelieving neighbor. If COVID is frightening you, you're not thinking about your non-Christian neighbor. Now, I'm not talking about being reckless. I'll say more about that in a minute. I'm talking about being careful. But if that's really what's driving you, if CRT has got you spun up, then you care less about your neighbors because you're more worried about that. If Trump's got you spun up, you care less about your neighbors. If Biden's got you spun up, you care less about your neighbors. It doesn't matter. You fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. The more you care about the cares of the world, the less you care about your neighbor. That's why we exist. To God be the glory and the church. Ephesians 3. Father, thank you. Thank you for, I don't know who this king was, maybe it was Solomon, but for taking them through him through such a, a journey. Wow. So we can learn from it. Thank you for pushing these values and questions right to the surface. It's very appropriate for us in today's world because we do have a lot to be nervous about. Help us, Father, to stay focused on you to keep you at the very center of our thinking and our life. And even more than that, to keep your love, your heart, at the very center of our heart so that we care more about our neighbors than we do about bad politics or whatever is going on in the world. And Lord, in light of that, I do pray for our Christian friends around the world in various countries who don't have what we have. Show them that grace and that joy which is so elusive. Be strong in their life too. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to ask the uh, ushers to come take the offering. Uh, you know what I say every time? We collect an offering, right? What do I say? Thanks for being generous, right? I saw several of you mouth it. It's true. I just love it. Thank you.